Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning and welcome to Mornings Without Carmen here on the 16th of December. I'm Peter Kapsner. Final day of filling in. Carmen has been away working on a book project and excited to give her the space to be able to do just that and love being with all of you here as we start our day talking about Jesus, living life in his kingdom, what it means to be an ongoing follower, maturing disciple of Jesus so that we can shine his beautiful light in the midst of the darkness of this world. Also delighted to be joined as always by Paul Perot. In studio, good morning, Paul. Good morning. So you and I, and I'm sure many of the people that are part of our Faith Radio family, do uphold the scriptures as something that we need to attend to on a very regular Mm -hmm. basis as a way of understanding life, being anchored in life. And, And I find it fascinating always that even when very familiar passages of scripture there's new nuances that get teased out, or yeah. maybe even I've misunderstood something. Even with all my little fancy letters about being the Bible professor, I can't tell you how many times I, my, my mind has had to be readjusted given evidence of Scripture. And this happened just yesterday. We're, we're in Luke chapter 16 as a Faith Radio family. Right. But I want to go backwards to yesterday when we talked about Luke chapter 15 just a little bit, because there's a very famous story in Luke 15, the, the parable of the prodigal son. For almost my entire life, uh, the, the story has been focused on the idea that the son is the prodigal. He's walking away. He'll eventually come back. And that part is true. But I was talking with Ben Holson, the program director here at Faith Radio mm-hmm. yesterday, and he said he was listening to a sermon from his pastor where the pastor said, actually, that word prodigal is more likely to refer to the father, not the son. And, right. I, and I thought, huh. So then you do what you do. You read the scripture and you start doing some research. Come to find out that I think that's probably the closest to the mark because (laughs) prodigal means something different in the Greek language than I even knew. It it can mean lavish. It can mean lavish. Okay, people say, well, wasn't the son being lavish in his flaunting, you know, in the lifestyle he went to? Well, yes, but the reality was the father lavished undeserved love upon his child. And so the prodigal, and I think... I think I first heard it from Charles Stanley. That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. He he, he uh, preached on that one time. It's like, oh, wow. Well, and then one of the things in terms of the flow of Scripture itself we always have to keep in mind is that when Luke and any of the authors of Scripture wrote Scripture, they weren't putting chapter and verse in. So you always have to interpret Scripture according to some of the surrounding context and the surrounding stories. Right. And when you do that, it gives even more credence to the idea that this was about the lavish love of the father for someone who had turned away from mm-hmm. the father because the, the, the 15th chapter of Luke starts with the religious leaders of this day being so troubled that Jesus would be eating with sinners. Oh, he must be one of them. He, he actually likes hanging out with the rabble of this world, not because he's going to celebrate the rabble, but because the rabble is going to probably be more apt to listen to the teachings of Jesus than the fancy religious leaders of the day. And so they're all concerned about who he's, he's sitting with. And Jesus says, let me tell you not just this story of the prodigal son. Let me, let me tell you about three different stories that shine the heart of the father in, into all of this. And one of them is the story of the last sheep. 
And then he tells the story of the woman looking for the lost coin. And then it's the story of the prodigal son. And in all three stories, it's about the profound energy that the seeker has to find Mm -hmm. that which has been lost. Right. And so the prodigal son is probably the prodigal father. Who knew? Well, Charles Stanley knew that before. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll get into Luke chapter 16 here at the top of hour two of the show. But it was fun to go backwards and just be reminded once again of the lavish love of the father, that he came to seek and to save the lost and that he pursues and chases uh, all of us who have walked away from the beautiful kingdom to restore us to health and to wholeness as part of what we celebrate every day here at Faith Radio. It certainly is what we celebrate on mornings with Carmen and uh, our guest this morning coming up in just a minute is Ben Johnson, and he does talk about this very life of the kingdom in the midst of the headlines of the day. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for one more day. This is my right. Of course, that is the music to welcome Ben Johnson into the show. He's a longtime journalist, has seen a lot of life, a lot of news, a lot of headlines. He currently works with the Daily Wire. He is a part of the rights writer and just does a great job observing some of the cultural trends that are happening, some of the headlines related to those trends, and also then brings the mind of Jesus into the midst of him. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's always great to hear your voice. I know you're out of the your home studio this morning. You're on the road, so we might hear a little bit of interesting background noise, just like that, from time to time. My apologies uh, in advance. That should come to a uh, stop as our conversation begins to uplift uh, one another. So. <laughs> I like it. Well, the first thing to talk about that I found uh, interesting, probably disturbing, but certainly worth a conversation, has to do with what's happening in the city of Denver, where there seems to be some evidence that they want to offer evenings or safe spaces or times of play, whatever you want to call it, that actually leads to the idea of segregated playgrounds. Tell us what you see in this, Ben. That's exactly right. You know, a, a picture has gone viral on Twitter, and uh, for once, that's a good thing. Uh, what's, uh, what it's uh, showing is Centennial School, elementary school in Denver, uh, with a sign that says, Families of Color Play Night uh, for the playground. So uh, apparently at this particular school, the playground is going to be open uh, only to uh, members of uh, certain, certain racial or ethnic backgrounds, people with just the right skin tone, we might say. Uh, and everyone else is excluded. Uh, In the old days, we would call this segregation. We would say that this was racial discrimination. This violates uh, what uh, the uh, entire code and creed of the United States was uh, was intended to be, which is that uh, all people are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So uh, we would have said uh, this is something that uh, should never take place, and particularly in a northern and western state that has no history of segregation uh, from uh, de-, de facto segregation, uh, perhaps, but de jure never, that is the sort of thing that should never take place. And yet that's what we're seeing uh, in, this, uh, in this instance. Obviously, as Christians, we should say that this is, this is wrong. It's unscriptural. Um, the idea of, uh, of race is kind of a foreign concept. When it comes to the scriptures, we are, we are uh, particularly identified by our faith as Christians, and uh, not by the tribe, tongue, or language uh, group to which we uh, ascribe ourselves. 
And uh, so, you know, this this idea is in, inherently unchristian, un, inherently unbiblical. But then uh, it's it's just bad precedent the whole way around. When it comes to uh, Christianity, we believe in treating everyone equally. And so the idea that uh, certain groups would have uh, a privileged access to certain facilities is, is wrong, and it uh, flies in the face of the entire argument in Brown v. the board, which is that separate can never be equal. And I, I agree with your impulses in general about what you're talking about, just to, just to try to understand the other side, to be as fair-minded as possible. When I think of the word segregation, it calls me back, obviously, into the 40s and 50s and 60s and even early 70s when uh, people of color were separated from people that um, were Caucasian or, or white, and they were separated to, to shove down the possibility of social power. In this case, I think some people might argue that the segregation is necessary so that social power can be raised up among minority communities. Do you see any strength in that argument, or is there more subtle damage being done here with, with the current form of segregation? Yeah, uh, and that, that is the common argument that is made. Uh, the typical term that's used is equity, that uh, various policies are being passed in order to build equity within a certain group, or power uh, is another word, power wealth, uh, to increase the resources that are available to uh, those who had been, quote-unquote, historically excluded, uh, to use the typical terminology. Uh, I think that that's not only wrong but uh, unbiblical, uh, simply because uh, what, we're, what we look at when we are Christians is not outcomes. That's, that's, uh, that's the kind of idea that says that the end justifies the means. If you go by that, then uh, the, the means are unimportant. As Christians, we are called to follow a certain moral code, and that means treating everyone according to certain principles, and that uh, particularly means to treat all behavior equally. Uh, and so we treat people according to their behavior, not according to their racial group. And it make, the, the problem is not that in the past blacks were discriminated against or whites were discriminated in favor, and therefore we should reverse the roles in order to bring about equity or power. The, idea, the problem is the discrimination itself. It was wrong in the past. It's wrong in the present. It would be wrong in the future, uh, with all apologies to Abraham X. Kendi. And so the discrimination is the problem. And as Christians, we can't endorse discrimination. Uh, we should do all that we can to aid anyone who's in need, regardless of their skin color. But uh, and, and if particular, uh, particular areas, uh, particular regions of the country, and particular groups are in need, then, yeah, we should have outreaches in Christian ministries uh, that uplift those people. But uh, the idea that we should change the, the rules of the game to reward behavior differently is unbiblical and unscriptural. I'm talking to Ben Johnson this morning about a headline that had to do with some segregated playgrounds in Denver. One more follow-up on this, Ben. Uh, critical race theory, equity, inclusion, all of these topics weren't part of my syllabus and my ethics course maybe four, five, six years ago. But of course, they're along with vaccines and sexuality, some of the main things my students want to talk about, and understandably so. One of the things that came up in doing some of the research around the idea of equity, inclusion, and, and racial segregation and togetherness is that when you actually read the scriptures, there is the beautiful invitation and many pictures that we see of all of the races coming together under one king and one lord. But by contrast, there isn't a lot of language in the scripture about trying to reconcile races so that they have equity of social power. The only real divide that we see in scripture is between the sheep and the goats or the wheat and the tares, the people that are part of the kingdom of following Jesus independent or regardless of the color of their skin and the people that aren't. And and everybody needs to be invited in, but there isn't really anything in scripture 
that talks about the need for people of different skin colors to have the same amount of social equity and power. So it, we need to get a pretty clear-eyed view of Scripture about what the invitation is and where the actual line is between us. That's exactly right. God's kingdom was never intended to be segregated. Uh, race and other factors were never important in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was constantly reconciling. He was constantly inviting and breaking down the walls, as it's spoken of in Ephesians 1 and 2. He was the repairer of the breach, not only between God and man, but between ethnic groups. And the idea is we would all be assimilated into one kingdom, which is Christ's kingdom, and that's the only dividing line. And I would just add that uh, the idea of separation of quote-unquote race is so unbelievably inherently ahistorical that those who make it should blush, particularly those in the history department. Um, frankly, if, if all Europeans saw themselves as quote-unquote white, there would have been a lot fewer wars over the history of Europe. Europeans primarily saw themselves as Scots or English, mm -hmm. or Anglo-Saxons or Swedes or so on. They did not primarily see themselves as part of one racial group, nor did uh, Native Americans or tribes uh, in Africa. They saw themselves as part of a particular group or class that uh, ended up fighting quite often, uh, most frequently, with people who looked the most like themselves. So the idea that we're all just uh, this amalgam uh, is, is ahistorical as much as it is unscriptural. The invitation is that whosoever will, each individual person has to have his or her heart changed by an encounter with our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, then we become part of his body, and that's our primary identification, not anything else, and it certainly should never be twisted as uh, some kind of vengeance or power play uh, when it comes to economic and political resources. I think it's so well said, Ben, and, and clearly Christians are called to minister to the least and the hurting and the lost, and, and everyone, regardless of skin color, would fa that falls into that category to come around and to help and support and, and bring hope to. It, it, it can go a long ways towards bringing together some of these really difficult racial conversations. Ben, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll change the topic. I know inflation, and especially at the time of the holidays, for those of us that are buying Christmas presents right now, a little bit of a shock. And so I want to get your perspective on what we see in inflation both now and in the future next year on Mornings Without Carmen. Talking with Ben Johnson this morning, who joins us every Thursday on Mornings with Carmen to talk about some of the headlines and bringing the mind of, uh, of Christ to those. Ben, do you have any uh, big Christmas plans coming up next week? Uh, yeah, well, I'll be honest. I almost forgot the Christmas is coming up. <laughs> keep, keep myself working. Uh, but no, uh, honestly, I'll, I'll look forward to uh, the day off. And of course, uh, we have a, a full day of events planned at the church. So I'm really looking forward to uh, gathering with the people that we love there. Uh, having a, uh, a Christmas uh, meal together and uh, celebrating our divine liturgy and, and uh, worshiping our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, born in the flesh. Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, clearly a lot of people are going to be driving around, maybe even over multiple states next week as they're visiting family, loved ones, friends. And I know my son and I took a road trip to Nashville a couple of, of weeks ago. It was about a 12-hour drive from Minneapolis to Nashville. And we thought we might be saving some money as opposed to, to flying down there. But I think, Ben, given inflation, it costs somewhere around $3,130 to fill up the tank right now. Pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, per, per tank, yes. Yes. Um, no, uh, inflation right now is completely out of control. As, uh, as I, I was recently writing about the Daily Wire, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, tracks this around the world. And they break inflation down by category. Right now, the United States is tied at number one for the highest rate of inflation in the entire developed world. Wow. The, the IMF uh, categorizes 35 countries as the advanced economies, 
and the U.S. and Iceland are tied at number one. So we're number one. It's another historic, <laughs> another historic moment for us uh, in the Biden administration. But uh, this this is particularly troubling. Uh, within uh, the uh, last few weeks, the uh, the uh, uh, Biden administration also released our own national figures, and the rate of inflation was 6.8 percent in the month of October. That's the highest 12-month increase in prices since June of 1982. And those of us who were alive at that time, uh, and you were mentioning in the intro, I'd seen a lot of life. I think that's a coded way of saying I'm old. (laughs) But those of us who were alive in the early 80s remember what the inflation was like uh, and the the steps that Paul Volcker had to take at the Federal Reserve in order to mop up the inflation with sky-high interest rates as well. Uh, we're the only way that we sort of balanced out by 1983-84, heading into uh, Reagan's massive re-election. Hopefully, we will not see something like that because the Fed is already talking about keeping rates uh, more or less the same, possibly stepping up just a tad bit. But we've been living with a, a sugar high for a very long time, artificially low rates of interest and this massive stimulus that has been poured in through multiple rounds of quantitative easing and now uh, possibly and now not only six trillion dollars worth of uh, COVID quote unquote stimulus, but then possibly uh, a multiple trillion dollar spending package known as Build Back Better, which would transform our economic systems. This is a huge problem. Uh, when, when we talk about inflation, people or economics, people think, well, this is uh, hard to understand, but inflation is incredibly easy. Every time you go to the gas pump, every time you go to the grocery store, you're paying more, and it hits the people who make the least amount of money or people who are on fixed incomes the most because they can afford the very least to begin with. And when you when you price things just a little bit more, it goes just out of their reach, and they have to start making choices about fundamental needs uh, and which one they will choose, whether it's rent or groceries. So it, it's a huge problem. And uh, it's a problem for them. It's a problem for our seniors. Uh, and uh, this is going to mop up the cost of living adjustment that uh, has been has been uh, offered to our senior citizens. So uh, this and other issues that uh, they're facing with it, uh, radical increases in Medicare payments for the first time. So that is uh, that's kind of the picture that we're seeing is that inflation is hurting everybody. Everyone feels the bite. And the fact that the government is pouring gasoline on the fire should tell us that we have the wrong policies in place. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch the impact of these policies on people's lives and then what happens in the polls and then uh, ultimately how politicians tend to be lagging indicators. They tend to change their policies when the polls start going down. And we see that happening in California, actually, too. One more topic for this morning is that a lot of people have been leaving California because of the high tax rate and, and the perception that they're not receiving anything socially from a service standpoint for those taxes. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and he moved to Austin, Texas, as did Elon Musk and a number of other people. But yesterday, Ben, I noted with, with great interest that the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, who historically would have been quite liberal in her policies, came out and said, we have to be tough on crime. She used some very colorful language to describe that. And I thought how interesting it is that a political position can change that quickly related to polls and where the constituency is coming from. It's amazing how people have a uh, what we would call a political come to Jesus moment when it comes to polls. Uh, and London Breed is a perfect example. Not only did she change her mind on crime, which we heard at the uh, top of the hour on the news, but and, and as you were just saying, she used very, very harsh language when it came to it. But uh, she's also 
uh, endorsed the recall, the recall of a couple of members of the school board. As we remember, of course, during the during the shutdown, the school board was focused on renaming buildings that were named after historical figures and and uh, revising the curriculum in such a way. They revised a curriculum that is so radical, the parents of San Francisco rejected it. So London Breed, the ultra left wing Democratic mayor of San Francisco, is uh, siding with parents as well because she sees where the polls are and she wants to be reelected. It's uh, it's an astounding turnabout. And when you see these smash and grab robberies and uh, the police told to stand down or told by prosecutors that uh, it doesn't matter if you arrest them or not, I'm not going to prosecute them, uh, particularly in the state of California and, uh, and in uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco. If someone is arrested multiple times, you have to prove that it's the exact same person and that cumulatively they have stolen more than $900 before they will be prosecuted and uh, they will instantly be released. So you're seeing this increase in smash and grab robberies. They're often linked to organized crime, even transnational criminal organizations and drug and human human smuggling in some cases. So these these kinds of crimes are going about in major urban areas because for at least a year crime has gone unpunished. And now you're starting to see uh, first they got the message on riots that the rioting had to stop. Don, Don Lemon even said uh, something about that on CNN in August, uh, right before the presidential election. Now they're getting the message on street crime and they're getting the message in some degree on um, revising curriculum and letting parents have a say in the public schools if they don't want everyone to be a homeschooler. Uh, from my own perspective, that's unfortunate. I think everyone's better served by homeschooling. But uh, as the case may be, that's that's the situation. Politicians respond to incentives. People naturally respond to incentives. And the incentive of being kicked out of office is the most powerful one that we hold as voters. Mm, I love it, Ben. Thanks for taking the time. It's been so delightful to have these conversations over the years, continue to follow Jesus, shining his light as we are part of this Christmas season right now. And uh, appreciate just taking the time while you're on the road as well to give a sense of the mind of Christ in the midst of all of these crazy headlines. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing, for filling in for Carmen. Uh, she's got the show in good hands. I love it. Thanks, Ben. Have a great uh, Christmas. We'll take a short break here and have some bottom-of-the-hour news and come back in the second half of this hour with author Charles Moore in his very important book, Following the Call. It is the final day of the great giveaway that you can sign well, up for. Quite, well, signing well, we're, up. Yeah, yes. signing we, up for. Yeah. yeah, we still have plenty of room to do yes. acts of kindness together as part a part of our Faith Radio family. We're looking for a thousand people to join the movement. Intentional acts of kindness. Head to myfaithradio.com. It's just such an easy and fun and and in a good way, disruptive way to shine a bit of light in the world. I mean, who, who doesn't like having an act of kindness done to them? But it is a little disorienting when somebody comes up and just does something with no condition attached, Paul. Yeah, but it's also a refreshing thing. It and is a refreshing thing. Here it is. Uh, if you haven't been part of it, just do a great act of kindness today. Then go to our website and sign up. We'll still send you the cards that we want to send you because you can do those with hand those out during future acts of kindness. But join us tomorrow between 3 and 4 o'clock Central, Susie Larson Live, because Susie and Bill and uh, Carmen will all be together celebrating your acts of kindness yeah. on the great giveaway uh, broadcast. I love it. One more time, go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up just for that. Up next, we're going to be joined by Charles Moore. He's an author of a really important book. It's been a very formative book for me and a lot of people here in this last year called Following the Call, Becoming a Disciple in the Attitude of the Beatitude. Stay with us. We'll be with Charles next. When a small skirmish between parents and teens ignites into World War III, 
Mom and dad feel like giving up and walking away. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If your home is the site of daily battles between you and your teen, you may know the feeling. I've met parents who give up in the fight just because they're battle-weary. No fighting seems really good compared to always fighting, but it often comes at the expense of growth on the part of the teen and the parent. Take a rest. Choose to lay off correcting and arguing for a few days, but don't give up on training your child altogether. You might miss the fact that conflict can lead to some of the biggest growth. So don't give up. Handled appropriately, conflict can be your friend. Learn how to get your team back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. Back to the show here on the 16th of December. It's about 22 minutes before the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for Carmen LeBurge. And excited to be joined by author Charles Moore this morning. Charles has compiled uh, a series of writings about discipleship stemming from the, the very famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, just talking about what it means to begin to, to grow in our following of Jesus. And part of what I love about this book is that it, it's anchored in so many of the historical voices of men and women and cross-culturally that helps us really with, with a clear set of eyes and heart about what it means to keep taking those steps daily. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Peter. Nice to be with you. Yeah, great to have you. We've been using your book uh, during our during the Advent season. We, we light some candles each day. We read from the story of one of the Gospels, and then we pick up your book uh, with our kids, ages 11 to, to 22, and invite them into the discipleship journey, at least another step in that. Just tell, our, tell people as part of the Faith Radio Network here, uh, what went into wanting to write this book, or at least compile the stories that are within it? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, early in my own Christian life, I read a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called um, The Cost of Discipleship, and it was uh, very influential. It really sowed the seeds of my love for the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to follow Jesus, um, uh, this is the heart, a heartbeat of his teaching. Um, and uh, so uh, that, that, that began my journey, and I'm a part of a, a church community that really um, uh, centers around putting the Sermon on the Mount into practice. This is the, the kind of the constitution of the kingdom and the constitution of our church community. So that inspired me to um, put this book together from a wide range of authors. Um, it's, it's everyone's sermon. And so that's uh, why there's such a wide range of, of authors that I selected, um, uh, maybe selections from. Charles, there's a number of things that have been very intriguing to me early in the book, as we're in, in the first part of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about what an actual happy life looks like. And, and you brought in some authors that, that would then comment on that. And among what the things that they said is how upside down Jesus's kingdom is. And, and two things have really stuck out. One is one of the authors made the point that to the extent that you begin to use human or secular means to build something within Jesus's kingdom is the extent to which you will lose any sense of power within Jesus's kingdom. And that has really 
uh, haunt, it hasn't haunted me, but I think it incisively got to the heart of why we struggle in Christendom so much is that we're so often using secular means, assuming we, we might pray a little bit here and there, but then we use secular means to try to grow these ministries. And and the author was saying, God's not really mocked in these situations, and so he will remove his power as we try to use our own power. I think we see a lot of that and maybe even why some of Christendom has begun to unravel a little bit because we're always using our own power in this. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, that author was Eberhard Arnold. And uh, I think that, um, you know, we need to step back and let Jesus shock us into the reality of his kingdom. And, and what he uttered in the, in the Beatitudes is really quite shocking. It's just the exact opposite of what the world values and esteems. Um, and unfortunately, we've kind of spiritualized these um, his teachings and make them very comfortable uh, where we can kind of keep living um, on our own steam and living kind of as, as, as you mentioned uh, in the, in the ways and means of the world. Um, and, but then we don't really experience the power of God breaking into our midst. Um, so uh, the, the Beatitudes really set the, the, the stage for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount really expands on, on the Beatitudes. It is shocking. I appreciate that word, Charles, shocking, and that because if, if we actually allow ourselves to do more than just a passing wink and a nod as we read the scriptures, but say, gosh, maybe I actually need to organize my life this way. Maybe it is so counter countercultural. I was reading something last night that was the invitation to descend in life versus ascend in life. And in that the, the road to wisdom and maturity is the constant process of giving up. Uh, versus trying to constantly ascend and grow some things. So organizing your life that way doesn't make sense in American culture, where so often what we're trying to do is ascend and build a name for ourselves or, or build the organization or whatever it might be, build a you, you name it. But uh, if we actually allow Jesus's words to be Jesus's words, it's an entirely different way of life, even in, in that level. Well, just consider how uh, God entered the world in Jesus, right? Um, in a stable, in a manger, he ends his life on the cross. Um, th- those are not notable, um, impressive um, yeah, situations. And, um, but somehow we want to try to impress the world into uh, God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is, is upside down. It's very opposite. Um, it's a lowly way, uh, yet it's the blessed way. It's really the, the, the key to the abundant life. And, and this is one of the odd things. Many people um, uh, kind of bypass the Sermon on the Mount because it, 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 uh, it feels so extreme. It feels too hard, but it's actually the key to the truly blessed life. It's good news. It is good news. We're chatting with author Charles Moore this morning. He compiled a series of writings in this book, Following the Call. If you're going to pick up any one book this year or into next year, to that really takes us into the heart of the discipleship journey. I highly recommend this book. Charles, as you were compiling through all of these different authors, there's so much in the Sermon on the Mount. There's so many things that, that you can tease out. Where, was there one or two things that you thought, wow, I've never thought about the kingdom in this way as, as you were doing this work? Well, uh <laughs> Really, so many um, uh, of the selections I made were very personally, very meaningful. And often um, my experience was I really haven't quite thought of it or I hadn't heard it put this way. And that's one of the blessings of this book, I think, is that um, there's some basic truths in the the Sermon on the Mount, but sometimes we need to hear them afresh. Um, 
just the very first chapter from E. Stanley Jones, um, he says, there is a beyondness in the Sermon on the Mount that startles and appalls the legalistic mind. It sees no limit to duty. The first mile does not suffice. You will go two. The coat is not enough. He will give the cloak also. To love friends is not enough. He, um, we will love enemies as well. Um, you know, I think um, the hard and fast, rule-like, strict, doctrinaire approach to Christianity um, just doesn't really grasp the beyondness of the Sermon on the Mount and how powerful um, Jesus's words are. And, and that's uh, the, the very first selection. And, and uh, um, Jones also points out that the master himself is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we just have to look at his life and see that it, it is modeled. Um, so it begins that way, um, a little uh, selection from Robert McAfee Brown um, on the chapter on um, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, this is a prayer some people pray without admitting it, a prayer that a few other people are honest enough to acknowledge. Um, it goes like this, our Father who art in heaven, stay there. Um, that is, um, you know, we pray, um, uh, thy will be done um, here on earth as it is in heaven. But do we really mean that? Mm. Um, do, when we really pray that, do we want God's will to be done here on earth? Or do we like to dream about how it is in heaven? Um, and, and how intentional when we pray the Lord's Prayer are we? Or do we just go through the motions and think it has magic power just because we're repeating the words? There are just so many different selections um, that it's it's hard to choose. Um, and and some uh, you know someday um, it's one, and and another day it's it's a, it's another. Love it. Yeah, I'm chatting with Charles Moore, who's compiled a book about discipleship called "Following the Call." Uh, Charles, when we come back, we'll, we'll change the topic ever so slightly, but it, it's still in the vein of discipleship because to follow Jesus is not a me journey. It's actually meant to be a we journey. And I know you've been doing a lot of work around community that we can follow Jesus together. And in that is the heart of evangelism about how we shine his light in the world through our lived relationship. So we'll talk about here that next year with Charles Moore. Stay with us a couple minutes. We'll be back and talk more about discipleship in community. Angels Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. It's about 11 minutes for the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today, and we are talking with Charles Moore about discipleship, his book, Following the Call, in which he brought together a series of writings and following Jesus. And Charles, not only are we meant to follow Jesus as individuals, in fact, the heart of our discipleship is following in the we instead of the me. And you and I were chatting just now during the break about the fact that I've been talking to my students quite a lot and reflecting on the fall of so many of these big organizational ministries that we've seen over these last 20 years, the moral failures, the power failures, the leadership failures of, of these organizations that were perhaps a little more bent on bringing secularized business ideas into the ministry, building brands, advertising, trying to draw demographics, all of these sorts of things. They are so desperately disinterested in that way of organizing and faith. And so I, I started suggesting, well, maybe we need to move back to more of a parish kind of mindset where we gather together in community, we live life together. We don't need to go 
necessarily outside of that community so much, but the way we live our life together then within that parish begins to shine a light on the world. And you told me that your first book prior to following the call was exactly about this topic. That's right. Yes. Um, I came out with a book uh, about four years ago um, entitled Called to Community, The Life uh, That Jesus Wants for His People. Um, and uh, this uh, book on the Sermon on the Mount was actually a follow-up. And again, it takes the theme of um, community uh, in 52 chapters, one chapter a week. And I um, uh, collected um, uh, writings from people, about 75% of the contributions are from people who have lived in intentional community. Um, and so this book in the Sermon on the Mount is, well, what's that community supposed to be like? Um, the constitution of the kingdom should mark the, the community. Um, and that's really important because the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus um, uh, usually speaks in the plural. Uh, you, plural, are the salt of the earth. Mm. You, plural, are the light of the world. He uses um, corporate metaphors like a city on the hill. Um, so uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a, some individual heroic ethic. It actually should mark uh, our life together um, in community. And as I'm talking with my students, they, they, this is so unfamiliar to them because they've grown up in the mindset of you do you, it's about your life, you make a way, you be your best self, you can be whatever you want to be. These individualistic messages that then have actually led to, perhaps understandably, I know I keep saying this, but but we've lived in an era where churches have certainly tried to market in a variety of ways, again, through products and branding and, and getting email lists and, and all of it to, to market to the you. Uh, and, and it's really just capitalism has, has met the church. But my students just they don't want to do that anymore. They said, if I could move to a community and be with 20 to 30 other people, the way we live our lives together as disciples is actually what's going to shine the light in the world. The plural you is the salt of the earth. And Charles, it reminds me of that early community in the book of Acts, that evangelism wasn't their ability to faithfully tell the story of God coming and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. Evangelism was their lived life together that was so disruptive to Rome around them that Rome didn't know what to do with it. And they thought, who are you people? And then from there, they could tell them about the resurrection power by which they were living together. I think we're seeing a great corrective coming in our, in our country. God's kingdom's not under threat. It's just going to take a very different expression that I think might be more faithful to what the invitation has always been. Yes, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with uh, you more. The medium is the message. And what is the medium? It's, it's um, God's love in our midst. And that's how the world will know us, right? Um, by our love one for another. Um, uh, by our unity. Uh, it's the kind of life that we live is the ultimate apologetic. And that's why Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate apologetic. Um, uh, it's his life that calls people uh, um, to the kingdom. And uh, that's what we're to, to be about. I, I um, have been living in an intentional community for almost 40 years. Um, and uh, all I can say is that um, uh, this is really what attracts people. They, they want an authentic life that is promised in Christ, demonstrated, not just words. And uh, it's revolutionary. It's a quiet revolution, um, but it's, it's revolutionary. And so I can see, I, I know, I, we, I, I, I'm, I'm now working with students at uh, Duke University, and there is this hunger um, to actually live the faith with one another and not just attend religious um, services. 
Yeah, it hit me like a bit of an epiphany last year when it talks about they'll know we're Christians by our love and beloved, let us love one another, the language of First John. And, you know, I'm a little slow sometimes, Charles, but it occurred to me that in order to have love beat the heart, to be the heartbeat of the kingdom, well, love requires relationship in which it is acted out. And so that's why the, the heart of the kingdom is a community of people living by these very disruptive invitations of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely. And, you know, we need each other. So, you know, Jesus's teachings, um, you know, they are a challenge to the flesh, um, but we need each other um, all the more um, to encourage each other uh, along the way. Um, but how else can you live out the, the, the teachings of Christ um, uh, when you think about it? Um, you know, lay your gift to, um, on the altar um, and be reconciled to your brother and sister. How many broken relationships are there, and yet we are still going um, and worshiping? Um, uh, we have to put um, uh, Jesus' teaching um, uh, in practice now, and that means we we go to one another and be reconciled. That's part of our worship. I mean, you just think of um, uh, the Sermon on, on the Mount in a more corporate way, um, and uh, uh, there, it's exciting, actually. It's an exciting journey. It is. Charles, we have uh, just about 30 seconds left here. I know that you have a weekly newsletter that you send out with people that are part of the Faith Radio family listening this morning. If they want to get some more insight and invitation into some of these topics, where can they go to sign up for the newsletter? Yes, it's just a following the call uh, on substack.com, um, and uh, it's free. And what I do is I take a, a chapter and reflect on it for the week. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, please, please go to followingthecall.substack.com. I love it. Charles, thanks for the work that you're doing. Delight to talk with you this morning and uh, looking forward to seeing more work about what it means to become a follower of Jesus in the midst of community. I hope you have a great Christmas. Thank you, Peter. Uh, likewise to you. We'll take a short break and wrap up this hour of the show and preview hour two up next on Mornings Without Carmen. Man, Paul Pro, I am so intrigued by that conversation with Charles Moore. I just, I, I, yeah, I don't want to oversell it, but I just don't know of a more important book because I, I really am intrigued by the idea that uh, God's kingdom is not at all under mm-hmm. threat, right? But no. it is going to take on a different expression into the future. And I think these little parish communities away from big business and brands and all of that, I think this is going to be the way forward from what I can tell with young people. Yeah, you keep referencing what you're dealing with or what you're getting from your students, and they're hungry for something different. They are. And it's something that currently a lot of our institutions aren't providing. Yeah, for sure. I know they, they're, they are hungry. Jesus really is real. They, they keep saying that, that this version of Christianity is going to fade away pretty quickly. I think at this point you can see the cracks, but the kingdom itself is not in Clarify threat. that this version, the wineskin, the big business, the big yeah, it's not going to Jesus fade. isn't under threat. Who no. are we getting here? The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against Jesus. We're not worried about that, but it is going to take a, a different kind of expression and form into the future. Stay with us. We'll be back in a few moments with Hour 2, starting with author Greg Matt. Cue up the text line. We've got some copies of Thanks his for book, listening to this Capture the Moment, to give away. Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.